From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. We all experience worry and anxiety in our daily lives. This comes before big presentations, hearing bad news, or standing on a crowded subway train. Typically, these stresses are normal safety barriers that keep us aware of our surroundings. When these feelings become rushes of physical symptoms and overwhelming thoughts, we call this panic. Crossing this line from everyday anxiety to a disorder is something that affects two to 4% of the population and many more are often undiagnosed and untreated. In her research, Dr. Amanda Baker hopes to improve outcomes for patients undergoing treatment for panic and anxiety by personalizing cognitive behavioral therapy, the current gold standard. Dr. Amanda Baker is an assistant professor of psychology and a staff psychologist in the Center for Anxiety and Traumatic Stress Disorders at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Baker, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. So uh, before we get into your research on uh, anxiety and panic disorders, I wanted to uh, know if you could just tell us sort of basically what anxiety and panic disorders are. Yeah, definitely. Um, And, you know, it's anxiety and panic are individual for every person. It's kind of slightly different, Um, but it is, you know, for panic, really um, kind of typified by a rush of physical sensations, uh, things like sweaty, clammy hands, um, you know, a racing heart, dizziness, lightheaded feelings, accompanied by fears around having future panic attacks. Um, so, you know, someone might have a lot of physical sensations and then a lot of worry or anxiety or fears related to those physical sensations. So they could be thoughts like, you know, perhaps I am going to pass out, or perhaps um, you know I'm going to have a heart attack. Things along those lines that are usually tied to the physical sensations, and um, you know these things are are very natural, and a lot of people experience worries or anxiety or fears around these lines. But kind of when it crosses that line to being something that then interferes in daily living or is extremely distressing, that's when it kind of crosses from normal anxiety into a disorder or something that you know we might treat. So you said that um, these are personal and individual depending on the person who experiences this. Um, And you mentioned a little bit about what kinds of symptoms people experience. What are some of the kinds of things that bring on a panic disorder or an anxiety attack? And when does that sort of start to surface um, generally? Yeah, it's another really great question. And and to your point, um, you know, they, they are personal in that both the symptoms themselves as well as the triggers or even kind of the, the onset is so personal and different for each person. Typically, we see panic and panic disorder kind of onset in the early adult age, so kind of somewhere between 18 to 25. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as the the personal aspect of it, you know, our, our our diagnostic system, which is, you know, the what we currently use, um, which is certainly imperfect, but has a whole list of a number of physical symptoms and another of other other symptoms that people might experience. And, you know, 
someone might only have a couple of things on that list. They might have all the things on that list. Um, so in that way, it's it really is different for everybody. And um, you, you also mentioned that it sort of rises to the level of a disorder once it starts interfering with your daily life. Mm-hmm. So what's, how could you, could you describe sort of the difference between that disorder state and sort of the daily panic, you know, anxiety that people go through? Yeah, definitely. And just to kind of give us some numbers, you know, n- about 25% of the population has panic attacks or has had panic attacks, whereas only, you know, about 2 to 5% of the population has panic disorder. So it's, it's very likely that, um, you know, someone would experience a panic attack at some point in their life um, or another kind of anxiety. So a third of the population will have some sort of uh, anxiety disorder throughout their life. You're saying that people could experience a panic attack but not necessarily have a panic disorder. Right. And um, you gave us uh, some statistics on the prevalence. Yep. So it sounds like, you know, panic attack is fairly common in people, but you might have one or two panic attacks in your whole life and that's it. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And so to to as you, to your point, to kind of cross over into a level of disorder or, or to where it's um, impairing or getting in the way of your life, um, you know, you would typically have more frequent panic attacks, the way we kind of classify it now is at least one a month. Um, But it's also possible that you're limiting your life in a way to avoid having panic attacks. So, you know, if um, I had my first panic attack on a train, um, like the the Boston subway, let's say, uh, then I might try starting to avoid taking the train for fear of having another panic attack. Uh, So, you know, I might start limiting my life in other ways as far as limiting physical symptoms, like not exercising or not pushing myself when I'm exercising, not drinking caffeine because I don't like the jittery feelings that it brings up, you know, things along those lines, which is, you know, a good indicator of someone's kind of crossing into the line where it's, it's starting to interfere in their life. Um, and yet still on average, people go 10 plus years of having panic attacks and even to a level of panic disorder before they actually seek treatment. Okay. So, um, once they do sort of seek that treatment, I mean, you said that people go undiagnosed for, can be, um, a matter of years. How do you have any statistics about the prevalence of the undiagnosed? How many people are undiagnosed and have panic disorders? I imagine it's hard to yeah. nail down. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And it, it is kind of hard to nail down. Um, you know, a lot of people just make accommodations. And so it's maybe not until a family member or a friend expresses, hey, you know, this is really getting in the way um, because they feel comfortable shrinking their bubble. Um, so there's not good data on the amount of undiagnosed panic that's out there. Um, I'm realizing, you know, back to your your previous question, you mentioned like how does it often start or kind of what sort of triggers it. Um, Oftentimes, you know, panic can come from out of the blue, but it can also be sort of like a traumatic experience that might trigger the first panic attack. It might be um, a physiological change that might trigger the first panic attack. Um, It could be a number of different things that could lead to someone first having their first panic attack. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of whether or not someone is then afraid of subsequent attacks that makes a difference. And so in terms of treatment, um, the standard of care right now is cognitive behavioral therapy. Could you describe what, um, what kinds of things go into that 
treatment? Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, for a long time, uh, medications like SSRI medications in particular have been kind of the the standard of care. And now more recently, a lot of research has showed that cognitive behavioral therapy um, is a front line in addition to medications. Um, And in general, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT um, is a very structured kind of time-limited focus treatment where a patient with panic disorder, let's say, is going to come in and really target the panic um, through their thoughts. So, you know, worries I might have a panic attack, worries I might die during a panic attack, their feelings, the physical sensations. So, you know, what we talked about before, racing heart, feeling dizzy, um, as well as emotional feelings, the worry, the anxiety, um, as, as well as their behaviors. So the, their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are really the three components that we really target in CBT. And from a, a CBT perspective, we feel like it's the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that interact to both create and maintain panic disorder. So how long do, does a, a course of CBT treatment typically last for? It, it's, again, a very um, kind of individual thing, but a typical course would be you know anywhere from six to 16 sessions on average um, for panic disorder. Um, you know, they're in the, the treatment study that I'm working on, it's a seven session protocol over 10 weeks. So it's a five weekly sessions and then two what we call booster sessions spaced out over the next five weeks. Um, but on average, you know, the the protocols are, are typically in that range, something where between, you know, two to five months of or so of treatment. And how do you measure progress? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we do have a number of standardized measures, especially for um, panic treatment, but certainly across all anxiety disorders as well. You know, one, one measurement that we use is what we call the panic disorder severity scale, so the PDSS, um, and that is a measure that's just seven items. So we collect it, you know, often weekly to check in and see how a patient's panic symptoms are changing over treatment. But certainly we also want to collect uh, information about quality of life. And, you know, I mentioned how panic is so interfering because it usually makes people kind of shrink their quality of life and sort of um, like um, shrink their uh, safety circle, if you will, or kind of um, oftentimes pa- patients create a like bubble in which they tend to operate. So I feel okay as long as I'm within this radius close to my home or a hospital or people that I care about. Um, so we want to make sure that not only are the symptoms of panic decreasing, but also their quality of life is increasing. So we, we definitely measure quality of life as well. And the research that you're working on now um, is focusing on personalizing CBT treatment. Could you tell us why personalizing the treatment is important? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a number of times today already we've talked about how it's so individual and, you know, everybody's panic looks different. Um, And, you know, it really should be the case that it's not like a blanket treatment that everybody gets the same thing. Um, So it would be really wonderful if we had good predictors uh, or good ways of measuring throughout treatment, whether or not someone was going to respond to a treatment at all, um, and also if we could tweak the treatment to make it even more effective for that individual. So, you know, to, to better be able to treat people as well as have the treatments last. So, you know, CBT is, as we talked about, the gold standard, and it does do a good job in decreasing panic, but about 50% of people over a two-year period will return to treatment or kind of experience somewhat of a relapse. So we really want to make our treatments more effective and also longer lasting. And how, how do you go about personalizing 
that treatment. You talked about the sort of three um, areas, the thoughts, feelings, and the f- uh, physical... Behaviors, yeah. yeah. Behaviors. So how, is, how does that... Um, how do you incorporate that idea in personalizing the treatment? Yeah, absolutely. I, I wonder if I could tell you a little bit more about the content of, of the sessions, yeah, too. And then, then we might get a bit into more personalizing Yeah, tell us there. about sort of how the sessions work. Sure, and, yeah. So early on, usually the sessions are very um, psychoeducationally focused. So we want to provide corrective information and accurate information about why our bodies do the things they do during a panic attack, um, you know, the, the fight or flight response, um, you know, providing information around that and just kind of providing some information that patients find helpful as to why they're experiencing what they're experiencing and even the adaptive nature of anxiety. And then often the, the treatment moves into at least a little bit of, of cognitive restructuring, so kind of the C part of CBT is is cognition or the thoughts. And we really try and help patients identify if their thoughts are kind of becoming unhelpful. In other words, if they are um, seeing things through, you know, a very negative anxiety lens, if they're really focusing on the worst case scenarios or they're, you know, focusing on something that's a tiny probability of actually happening and try and just think of these thoughts in a more accurate and more useful way. So for example, if someone's afraid of passing out while riding the subway, okay, well, let's think through how many times have you had this thought or had this fear and how many times has it actually come true? So really trying to provide some more accurate um, information. And then we really shift into the behavioral piece um, where we work on challenging the behaviors that have have been established to try and avoid having panic attacks. So this is both through what we call interoceptive exposure, which is really just bringing on the physical sensations that are reminders of panic. So the racing heart, the dizziness, the sweatiness. And we do this through a number of exercises. You know, on a typical day, I'm running up and down stairs with patients. I'm breathing through straws. We're spinning around in our chairs, doing whatever we can to bring on the sensations that are similar to their panic attacks. Um, And then we take it one step further and we try and have them do homework assignments outside a session where they're doing the interceptive exposure, they're bringing these straws, they're spinning in chairs at home, and they're also then doing it in the context that might bring up anxiety. So while riding the subway or while driving a car or, you know, going into places that perhaps they've been avoiding because of fear of having a panic attack. So, you know, there's a kind of a standard format that CBT often follows. And it, it would be really great if that was even further personalized. And a way to do that is through, you know, the study that I'm working on now is developing these individual networks of panic. And I'll talk about how those are formed in just a minute. But wouldn't it be great if we knew ahead of time that certain of these symptoms are, you know, really linked and really what's maintaining or generating this disorder, and we could target our exposure and our, our um, cognitive challenging directly at that link. So in other words, if someone's primary physical fear is around um, dizziness and they're afraid of, of passing out on the T, well, let's you know, target all of our exposure on the T, you know, feeling dizzy, uh, and work around those thoughts in particular. Hi, Think Research listeners. We're taking this break to let you know that Harvard Catalyst offers online courses and topics including grant writing, mixed methods research, and omics. Right now, we are accepting applications for our Introduction to Mixed Methods Research course. To apply and learn more about all the courses we offer, please visit catalyst.harvard.edu slash online learning. I guess you're relying sort of on people's 
self-reporting to you to tell you what their symptoms are. So are you, are there any ways that you can sort of measure that and figure out, okay, you are, you, you know, you do have a racing heart on the subway or you just, is there like a, sometimes a disconnect between what you feel and what you're actually, your body's actually doing? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, an interesting component that we've added to this current project that I'm working on is having patients wear um, a device that's collecting heart rate, skin conductance, um, and kind of, you know, activity. uh, And we're linking that to their self-report. So the idea is to really try and get both self-report psychophysiological data, um, and ultimately the goal would be to get more neural data as well and try and add that all into one network uh, and to really see how the two do head-to-head, which a lot of research has shown um, that there is a discrepancy between self-report and and psychophysiological data, Uh, but it would be interesting to see if we can put that all into one network. Self-report is is great, but it can certainly be biased. And oftentimes when patients first start, they don't actually perhaps realize the ways in which panic is even interfering. Um, you know, one thing that I mentioned already is this idea of safety behaviors. Those can be really subtle things that patients might do to avoid anxiety. So it could be anything from, you know, carrying my trusty water bottle with me to feel safe when I'm on the tee, making sure my phone always is fully charged, um, or, you know, having uh, other things with me that make me feel safer. So, you know, raising the level of awareness to realize that that's something that's getting in the way takes some training and almost some of the treatment itself. So the gathering the data for the networks we're doing through an iPhone app or a smartphone app where five times a day, you know, a patient is randomly alerted to answer uh, questions on an app on their phone. Uh, and so those questions would be around the physical feelings they're feeling in that moment, the thoughts they're having, and any behaviors they might be engaging in. Uh, and so we're getting this data not, you know, passively, but while the patient's going through their daily life, it's not that they're sitting down with a clipboard in, in the waiting room and answering these questions. It should be integrated as much as possible into into their daily life. So hopefully we're getting even more accurate um, and relevant information than we do with our typical self-report measures. You mentioned the adaptive nature of anxiety. Um, I wonder if you could talk about um, sort of stepping away from the research study for a yeah. second about what function anxiety has for us in terms of survival, how we've adapted, you know, why, why do people, is it just like, why do people have these anxiety attacks? Is it a short circuit? It's like a malformation. And I imagine there's a, I mean, there's the, you, you also mentioned the fight or flight response. Yeah. There's a good reason that we experience these feelings. Like if we're about to be hit by a car or animals chasing us or something, but Um, Could you talk about that and sort of why the uh, um, anxiety response helps us and maybe how it gets, um, how it goes awry? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, a lot of patients come in and say, gosh, I wish I could just wave a magic wand and get rid of anxiety. And, you know, I, I, you know, really um, work with the patient to make sure that by the end of the treatment, they don't agree with that statement because, um, Anxiety is so adaptive and it is so helpful and it's a universal thing that everybody experiences to different degrees in different situations. And just like you said, you know, if you're 
walking just right down the street, just outside here. It's a pretty busy street. Car swerves and almost hits you. I want that fight or flight to kick in and for everyone to jump out of the way and feel safe. You know, it's so funny because in our treatment, um, we use some really corny metaphors. Uh, and one of them is, you know, kind of like the, the caveman metaphor, um, which is going back in time to you know, old textbooks and almost thinking through um, anxiety and in that kind of way. But, mm -hmm. you know, if you imagine that you're a, a cave person, you come out of your cave and you hear a very strong rustle in the woods, your initial response might be like, oh, no, what's that? Right. What's is there something there I need to defend myself or run away from? Uh, and then let's say the rustle turns out to be a little squirrel, you know, jumps across your path. Then usually there's the feeling of relief, like, oh, good, that saber-toothed tiger's not in that in that bush, I'm going to be okay. And we almost think of it like, you know, when someone has panic disorder, their alarm system is going off to all the squirrels in the world as if they were saber-toothed tigers. So it's not that we want to eliminate that response in any way. We just want to dial it down. So it's the squirrels get the squirrel-level response and the saber-toothed tiger-level response is reserved for those kind of true dangerous situations. Mm -hmm. Are there any instances outside of like the fear response that anxiety is helpful? Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, in uh, I think we could think of many different situations day to day where a little bit of anxiety can be super helpful. You know, we often think that it like serves a preparatory function or kind of warning. Um, you know, if I wasn't nervous about, you know, an exam or a big talk I had coming up, I wouldn't do any preparation. Um, so that a little bit of anxiety can be very helpful. And there's, you know, uh, reliable curves that we see that a small amount of anxiety, quite helpful day to day. Whereas once it kind of th crosses that threshold, it then becomes quite impairing. So if I have a lot of anxiety about that upcoming test or exam or panic attack, whatever it is, I'm going to do a lot of avoidance or what we call safety behaviors to kind of block myself from feeling that anxiety. And then it really gets in the way. So for somebody who's, say, they're, they have a fear of getting on the subway, they get to a point where they're riding the subway. What, what do you tell people to think of or like how do you what are those skills that you have them use if it's a hot day the red line is crowded and they're packed in and they feel like it's approach like you know that feeling is approaching is it yeah i mean is it a f what yeah what are the skills that kind of you prepare people with and it's so <laughs> it's so tricky because um Almost we want them to do nothing, which is sort of hard to, to embody, especially when, you know, I'm here on the train, I'm feeling sweaty, it's really packed, and, okay, my therapist wants me to do nothing. What does that mean? You know, what do I do? Um, but really it's this idea of I want you to be doing whatever it is you would be doing if you weren't feeling anxious in that situation. So if it's, you know, I was listening to my iPod or, you know, if I guess that's antiquated at this point, right? If I was listening to music, if I was, um, you know, talking to a friend or if I was uh, looking at something on my phone, I want you to be doing whatever you would be doing. And again, not as a distraction, but just as a way of reengaging with life in that moment. But certainly, I also want, you know, my patients to come back to whatever good cognitive challenging skills we've practiced in sessions and they've been practicing. So if thoughts are coming up along the lines of, what if I pass out right now? Or, um, you know, what if the train stops and I get stuck here forever? Then we're going to go through those 
kind of more likely using our true odds skills and what we call decatastrophizing or looking at, okay, even if something bad did happen, so what? Not so what we don't care, but how would we handle it? Hmm. And what about, how does, um, does news coverage affect that kind of thing? Like if somebody has that fear of being on the subway and then they read in the globe that yesterday, a you know, blue line train lost power and they had to walk through a tunnel. Like mm-hmm. how does that affect people with uh, panic disorder and anxiety? Yeah, it certainly does have an impact and it really um, just then reminds us and brings up that we really need to go back to kind of true odds in those situations. But hearing about something like this or hearing about, you know, something bad that's happened in general does increase anxiety. Uh, And then it's coming back to, okay, well, how many trains actually, you know, left whatever station it was in that whole day and how many Um, you know, broke down or how many had an issue. And how about in the last year, if we think of the true odds of something like this even happening? And then again, coming back to, okay, so even if it did, how would we cope? How would we get through it? Um, And ultimately, patients can certainly choose to kind of tighten their safety circle and feel like, okay, well, I'm just not going to take the the train then. Or they can choose to accept some risk and kind of live in that 99.9%, I call it, world, of having some chance of something bad happening, but having the the confidence and um, uh, feeling okay with if something should happen. You know, I feel very lucky to be able to conduct this work, and um, it's it's come through the an amazing grant through the uh, Harvard Catalyst and NIH, um, the KL2C Merit Award, along with the Highland Street Family Foundation, has provided funding. Um, and you know, recently learned that I was awarded a NARSAD Young Investigator Award to continue this work and actually add a um, additional psychophysiological assessment measure um, before and after the treatment as well. So I'm really looking forward to expanding the the research. And expanding it how in terms of larger population? So that will be adding this loud tone startle paradigm Mm -hmm. before and after treatment. So uh, patients will have essentially headphones on and um, there will be 15 loud tones randomized over a short period of time. And then we have them hooked up to psychophysiological equipment, measuring heart rate, uh, eye blink, um, and skin conductance, which is basically just sweating. And then we see how much of a response they have to these sort of startling loud tones. The idea is hopefully we see a change with treatment that there's a reduced response to the loud tones. It's a paradigm that's been used in PTSD research, but hasn't really been applied to panic disorder yet. And what's the timeline for, you said that you were just awarded a grant to mm-hmm. add this. Is mm-hmm. it extending the time of the study? Yeah, so that's, this grant will get started up in January and it'll be for another two years. So we will hopefully get to you know include a whole bunch more people in the study. Besides the research that you're doing now, is there anything that you would like to see in terms of improving, anything else you'd like to see in terms of improving diagnosis or treatment or both? for panic disorder. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in general, I would love to see that time gap between when someone starts suffering to engaging in treatment shortened significantly. I mean, years and years go by, um, and I would love to be able to reach 
you know, those people. I would love to also just have folks get good treatment earlier. Um, so, you know, a lot of times folks go through rounds of many different kinds of, of therapies or medications before coming to something that works for them. And that's part of where the personalization of medication and therapy could be really helpful. So to have some measures ahead of time, knowing what's going to work for who. Um, so those are some things that I would really, really love to see change. Another thing in general is just getting the the CBT out there into the community more. So there's whole you know, dissemination efforts out there well beyond my area of expertise, but to be able to reach places, whether it be through virtual treatments or you know training uh, clinicians in the community, just having these treatments more read- readily ab- available. Thank you, Dr. Baker, for coming in. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. next time on Think Research. If you could think of another world or another place with a different vocabulary that actually reserved the word super spreader for mining companies that avoid their taxes, they've avoided hundreds of millions in tax payments, that those tax payments would have been enough to fund a health infrastructure that would likely have stopped Ebola in its tracks. So I don't even see it as a stretch of the imagination to call that entity a super spreader. We hear from Dr. Gene Richardson about his biosocial approach to global health. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.